Around the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined on this dog days of the NBA summer day by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. Howdy. Howdy, Joe. We're going to manufacture things to talk about today. No, not really. There are, there are things to talk about. It's just a lot of speculative stuff and questions to be asked as opposed to reacting to things that are actually happening. We've talked enough about Kevin Durant already this summer and this offseason and about what the Nets should or shouldn't do and what teams should or shouldn't trade for them and the leverage the Nets have and yada, yada, yada. But it is the story that won't go away because it is Kevin Durant on the trade market. And it seems every week or so, even though trade talks and the offseason as a whole seem to have come to a screeching halt, every now and then reporters will give us a tidbit that might not be new, but is new to us. And this week, it was both Woj and Shams. Woj first reporting that the Celtics had offered Jalen Brown in a package uh, to the Nets to try to pry Kevin Durant from Brooklyn to Boston. And then Shams elaborated a little later in that day earlier this week, saying that the Celtics had offered Brown, Derek White, and a draft pick, whereas the Nets rejected that and wanted Brown, Marcus Smart, and multiple draft picks at least in the package. So first question to you is, given everything we've already talked about with the Nets, how they don't have to or shouldn't necessarily rush this process, how there is no shame in coming back into the season with Kevin Durant there, with Kyrie Irving and Ben Simmons, with a Kyrie Irving that's now reportedly saying he's actually wants to start like play the season in Brooklyn regardless of whether Katie's there or not. Anyway, given all- He's just doing a bit at this point, right? Dude, his he is a bit. He's a walking bit, is what Kyrie Irving is. But given all that we know through reports, all that we've already discussed in previous episodes that people can listen to when it comes to the Kevin Durant sweepstakes, do you think, based on these Woj and Shams reports, that, of that first off, like Jalen Brown, Derek White, and one first-round pick, do you think the Nets should have taken that? Would you have taken that if you're Sean Marks? I, I wouldn't have taken it on the spot. I think... If that's still the best offer that's on the table as training camp is approaching and it seems like maybe Katie's not going to report or there's just a risk of things spiraling out of control, then maybe you reassess it. But I don't think they're wrong to turn that down right now. And it's interesting from both sides, right? Like the question of, okay, should the Nets take that first offer or should the Celtics capitulate and actually accept the counter offer that Brooklyn reportedly put on the table. I think that, you know, what's sort of complicating this is the fact that uh, Jalen Brown has two years left on his deal. And this is something we talked about, you know, with the DeJounte Murray thing and how that maybe spurred, sorry, no pun intended, spurred San Antonio into trading him a couple years before he became a free agent is because he was, this is more true of DeJounte than it is of Jalen Brown. Like DeJounte is on a real bargain contract. Like there is zero chance that they were going to be able to extend him because of the the limits on the 125%, maybe 120% that you can tack on from the last year of that player's current contract in order to extend them. So be- because like Jalen Brown is on this sub max deal, it seems maybe not that likely that he's going to, sign an extension and so you're thinking like 
okay, we don't necessarily know that we're going to have this guy for more than two years. And that's where I think it gets really interesting because he's eight years younger than KD and doesn't have the wear and tear or the injury history. But KD actually has two extra years left on his contract. So in a weird way, there is almost like maybe more security there with Durant. And the one thing like, okay, so a lot of people will say, well, yeah, Durant has four years left on his contract, but he might just get disillusioned after a year or two and asked to be traded again. Well, then it's like, okay, well, you still have Kevin Durant as a trade piece if that happens, like if it comes to that. And maybe you're not going to get back what you give up to get him, but that's not the same thing as losing a guy for nothing two years from now. So I think that that's sort of what makes it interesting is like this, you know, soon to be 34 year old Kevin Durant with four years left on his contract versus a, an ascendant 25 year old in, in Jalen Brown who could walk as an unrestricted free agent in two years. I, I feel like that is sort of what is, what is complicating the picture. Because if you look at it from Boston's perspective, if they feel confident in their ability to re-sign Jalen Brown in 2024 and, you know, have good reason to feel confident based on conversations that they may have had with Brown and or his reps, then this is a totally different story, right? Like for them, I don't know. I just like, that's where it gets hard to say what they should or shouldn't do because we don't know what they know. But I'm thinking, you know, from Brooklyn's perspective, it's like, yeah, any package with Brown involved looks pretty good on the surface because it's very possible, I think, that they won't get another offer for Durant that includes a player as good and as young as Jalen Brown. You know, like, it, dude seems like he's been around forever, but he's still 25. I feel like the... Maybe Ingram is the only other guy in that like age and talent bracket that could conceivably be the backbone of another team's trade package. But I can't actually see the Pelicans putting him on the table. So Brown might be as good as it gets for the Nets in terms of present day talent as a headliner coming back. But if if they're worried about their ability to re-sign him in two years, uh, the Nets that is, you know, like, two years when they're projected to be a bunch of teams around the league with cap space and a rising cap environment because of this new TV money that's coming in. I, they're not necessarily wrong to insist that that initial offer is not enough. You mentioned the TV money going up too. And, and when that deal comes up in a couple of years now, that can affect the cap. Remember that in addition to Steph Curry being on a, um, uniquely team-friendly deal at the time, that rise in the cap because of TV money is also what led to the Warriors being able to sign Kevin Durant in 2016. So that rise in the cap you just mentioned, I'm glad you did, is something that people should be watching yeah. in a couple of years because but there's it also... It does seem like they're going to they're gonna smooth it out this time rather right, than having a one-time um, spike. It will be interesting too because as others have reported, this might be the first, or it almost surely will be the first uh, NBA TV rights deal that's going to include streaming services as well potentially and that could just send the money skyrocketing anyway in terms of the, the KD and Jalen Brown stuff I'm not necessarily surprised that they're going to haggle back and forth and even to your point it's like Brooklyn was right to say no now but Jalen Brown might be the best player available to them so like they can say no now haggle a bit and still maybe decide a month from now okay this is the best thing we're going to end up taking a, a, a Jalen Brown centered trade if they don't do that i'll be surprised because 
Jalen Brown's a name that like when um, for the scores YouTube page for our like take this in explainer series when I did like breaking down the KD sweepstakes a couple weeks ago and I did like the teams at the forefront of it and why some teams can't trade from blah 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 at the end I kind of ran through a bunch of teams where I said if one of these teams actually puts one of these guys on the table that could be close to what the Nets you know want from a godfather offer and then this whole thing could be done and one of the names I throw there's like look if the Celtics really wanted to get Kevin Durant. They put Jalen Brown on the table. They can probably get it done. Ingram was also one of the guys in that mix. So I am, if they don't end up getting this done, I'll be surprised. Because I did think Jalen Brown was actually one of the players. It's like, okay, if he enters the picture, this thing's going to wrap up. They'll find a way to get it done. And I get it from the sense of like, well, the Nets would only end up with two years of team control of them. But like still multiple years of team control on a young rising all-star. and from Boston's perspective, I think it should be pretty close to a no-brainer, man. Like, I understand it gets more complicated because then you're also giving up smart if you do what the Nets want you to do. But you also did add Malcolm Brogdon this summer. Like, I talked so much about the whole team control thing the last time we spoke about this, right? And even with, with like, why I didn't think the Raptors should give up Scotty Barnes. Because when you include the team control you have after a guy's rookie scale contract, they'd be giving up like potentially seven to eight more years of team control for Kevin Durant's mm-hmm. age 34 to 37 seasons. That's not the case with Jalen Brown. Will the Celtics have an advantage in signing him? Yes, but it's not the same as coming off a rookie scale contract. Like they very much could just be looking at this as the next two years of Jalen Brown versus age 34 to 37 KD. And even if you only look at those first two years of the contract of KD to match Jalen Brown's current contract, if you just asked yourself, Forget long-term. Who do I think is the better player over the next two seasons, Jalen Brown or Kevin Durant? I still think it's Kevin Durant, and it's not particularly close, right? Even with all the miles on his body, because you're not talking about three years down the line. So if the Celtics can like ultimately pull this off, even if it would include smart and multiple picks going the other way, I still think that's pretty close to a no-brainer, man. And you go into next season with Kevin Durant, Jason Tatum, Malcolm Brogdon, Robert Williams. Like, you are still, in my opinion, the class of the East and probably the class of the NBA if you pull that off. So I think the Celtics might be looking at a no-brainer situation by the end of the summer. And I think the Nets might reach the end of the summer and realize this is the best they're going to get for Kevin Durant at any point here. And so for me, it's like starting to add up where this makes too much sense. And I'm starting to envision Kevin Durant in Celtics green, which if you remember six years ago, when he ultimately decided on the Warriors, the Celtics were one of the teams heavily in the mix and that people thought could be the team that pried him away from Oklahoma City. So six years later, but yeah, Tom um, Brady was going to seal the deal, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But it, yeah, this, I don't think like the most likely of all the trade stuff that's been out there so far where you can start mm-hmm. to see it making sense for both sides, in my opinion, a lot more than some of the other teams that have come up so far. Boston is such an interesting team to be in this position because we were even saying like after they pulled off the Brogdon trade, I think we both agreed that they were like the championship favorites heading into next season. I think they're the best now, team on paper right now. There's obviously a big difference between being like, you know, a slight fit, like, you know, like of all the teams, like they're maybe slightly the most likely to win because of their depth, because like they're coming off this incredible finals run in like second half of last season where they were by far the best defense in the league. They're a young team that's getting better. Like there are reasons to believe in them, but like it's a fundamentally different thing to say, okay, like 
they could pull this off for reasons X, Y, and Z, but like they're still a significant dog if you're just like playing them versus the field. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, if they find a way to get KD and we can get into the specifics because I think there's a huge difference between the initial package. Like of course. Brown plus white versus brown plus smart plus whatever else. It's additional. Yeah, it's it's brown, white, and I think one first rounder and versus brown, smart, and multiple first rounders. Yeah, but we're just talking about next season. So the multiple right. firsts right. don't matter. Yeah. Um, I will say for like from the Nets perspective, okay, getting one Boston pick, I, obviously it depends where that pick is going to fall uh, on the timeline, but I can see them turning their nose up at that because like Boston's going to be really good for the next at least couple of years, right? Like the, I don't know that that pick is going to amount to much more than like a, a pick in the twenties, which, you know, we've seen sort of uh, the, what's the value of a, of a pick in the twenties at this point? I mean, we, we saw one get traded on draft night for DeAnthony Melton. So yeah, let's, let's say that, that the, you know, that package amounts to something like, a solid reserve. <laughs> well, like, you know, if you're just putting like a, a strict trade value on it, I feel like you could say it, that that package would amount to like Jalen Brown, Derek White, and DeAnthony Melton. You know? Mm-hmm. So I, I understand like them. And this is where it gets interesting, right? Because the, the Celtics could put their foot down and say, no, we're not including Marcus Smart, but we can give you a bunch more picks if that's what it'll take. And then you start getting, you know, further and further out where you're not sure, you know, how long the Celtics are going to be good for. And suddenly the picks start to look maybe more appealing if they're five years out into the future. So I don't know. It's it's kind of, you're thinking about what both teams want, what both teams need. And I guess... To go back to what I was saying, like Boston is in this position where they could go into next season as, if not a championship favorite, then like inner circle contender, you know, like one of the four most likely teams to win the championship next year. And I just think that's, it's like a fascinating position for them to be in when they're thinking about, like for them to make this move where they're they're trading a 25-year-old for a player who's eight years older than that. And then possibly a guy who has been, you know, kind of the heartbeat of the team for the last few years, just one defensive player of the year. I think we both agree, like, he wouldn't have been our pick for a defensive player of the year, but he is in many ways the fulcrum of what was the number one defense in the league last year. He allows a lot of what they do to work because of his ability to guard any position, you know, to switch one through four, one through five in some cases, to be just like an absolute hellhound at the point of attack to stand up bigger guys in the post to make their scram switching and their frenetic rotations work. Like he makes a lot of that possible. And, and a chunk of that goes out the window if he's gone. Right. So what they have to weigh is, okay, if they pull the trigger on that, how much is that actually like separating them from the pack? Like it's an interesting this whole situation, this whole Durant situation, I feel like has brought up an interesting philosophical question in terms of just like short and long-term planning and general team building ideology, you know, which is what is the threshold beyond which it no longer makes sense to push for 
this kind of trade, you know, and like for, for the Celtics, like you're pushing for a trade that is not just going to make you a championship contender because we know Boston already is that, but a strong championship favorite. And so at what cost to your ability to contend long-term does making that kind of short-term upgrade still make sense? You know, like how far in that direction would you swing for the security of knowing that, I don't know, for the next two years, let's say, we are going to have the best chance of any team in the league to win the whole shebang by a lot, you know, versus say we can be firmly in the mix for the next five years, not necessarily favorites or, or overwhelming favorites or, you know, we, like I said, we're going to still be significant underdogs against the field, but we'll have a much longer runway and maybe one of those years we hit, maybe two of those years we hit, but it's like, rather than this, two-year window of like super contention or like favorite status you get like five or six years of just like being in that inner circle like that's i think that's an interesting question and i don't know what the right answer is you know i really don't you know daryl morio always had the thing right of if if you believe that your team has at least a five percent chance to win the championship in a given season you should be going all in for it so yeah it's almost like the Celtics, as currently constructed, could be one of those 5%... Con- or, or, they are one of those 5% contenders for sure for the next X amount of years, right? But you get Kevin Durant and it's like you're, uh, what, 15 to 20% contender? But yeah, just for half the time. Like, mm-hmm. it is such an interesting question. And again, I think what makes... In addition to how outrageous the Nets' demands have been because of the term on Kevin Durant's contract, what makes this all so fascinating, it is Kevin Durant's age and the injury. Like, it, all that plays into it here and... The same question I've asked so many times. It's like, you sell the farm and then some for Kevin Durant, but realistically, how many of the four years that you've got him under contract, is he going to be the Kevin Durant that you're trading the farm for, right? Right. So it really is like the most fascinating trade market related thing that we've seen in, in recent memory because of all these factors that are just so unique and unprecedented. And I, again, having said all that, I still do believe that a Jalen Brown center trade, unless a team comes out of nowhere with something better than that. Like, I do think that's going to be the best option for both sides by the time this summer wraps up. This is why I'm not sure about that Jalen Brown, Marcus smart package, like including smart to me makes it kind of a 50, 50 proposition, you know, where I'm not sure that that trade actually upgrades the Celtics enough in the short term to justify like the long-term downside. That's, that's like Derek white picks, whatever. Yeah. I think you do that. Uh, And I'm a Derek white fan. I think he's, you know, a really good role player Um, has been kind of disappointing to me in terms of his development and the way that it stalled out, because I thought a couple years ago, he was like really on an ascendant track where I thought he had a chance to be like a, super solid complimentary ball handler who could start uh, rather than, you know, being the, the sort of, I don't know what you would call him for the Celtics team. Like he, he was a, a sub, but he, I don't know, just offensively, like his growth has, has been super disappointing to me. So I think there's like a, a huge difference between him being the second guy in that trade and smart being the second guy in that. Trade. Oh, for sure. Gun to my head, our favorite hypothetical I, uh, scenario. Listen, that's what was coming. You knew you knew that's what was coming. Once you finished this rain, I was going to put that theoretical gun to your head. Uh, I think that, yes, I would do it. 
Same. But oof, I mean that's that's tough. Like that's a by no means a, a no brainer. That's a really difficult decision, both in terms of the the fragile chemistry that comes with team building. I mean, like the way that the Celtics put that team and specifically that defense together, the way that all those pieces fit and that it, the way that it coalesced this past season. I mean, that's hard to recreate. And as much as you can look at Kevin Durant and say, we're talking about, you know, maybe the greatest offensive player this league has ever seen. And we're pairing him with another rangy, extremely fluid playmaking wing and Jason Tatum. And both of those guys can defend on and off the ball. And you have complimentary playmaking and shooting and Malcolm Brogdon and the rim protection and Robert Williams. And we'll hope like this, this team starts to look very, very scary, but the game isn't played on paper, right? Like there's just no guarantee that it's going to click the way that you think it will. When you look at the team on paper and like we have a Boston Celtics team that we know can work in practice. Like we've seen it work and we know how important their defensive versatility can be in today's NBA where, I mean, we had, we talked at length about it on this podcast about what we learned from this past postseason and how I think the biggest takeaway that we both had was just about how important being defensively versatile has become. And not that they wouldn't be defensively versatile, if they were to make this trade, like they would still have uh, a ton of high, high level defensive pieces, including Kevin Durant, who remarkably remains a, an impact defender at his age. It's just a risk. It's a big, big risk. And I would lose a lot of sleep trying to make that decision. Like, I, I think it's it's interesting. It's challenging. And uh, I don't know that, it, that this deal is going to end up getting over the finish line. I think that to your point, like this feels like the most substantive yes. offer that we've heard about where it's like, okay, we can see that like there's a framework here. And so that maybe makes it seem like this is the most likely destination, but this could all just go away. And the Celtics could say, no, we're not, we're not putting smart in no chance. And that's it. And then that's walk away. And the Celtics are never heard from in the KD sweepstakes again. That's kind of the way that it's gone with this, right? Where, it's, I don't know, from one week to the next, it feels like it's going in any number of different directions. I guess if you want to talk like odds-wise putting money in it, the bet would still be against this going down. It's probably less than a 50% chance, but it's the most substantive chance of the Kevin Durant-related rumors, reports, whatever you want to call them. So it will definitely be fascinating to see how it all shakes out. And obviously the first, the the offer Boston put out there there's a reason they put it out there that's the no-brainer one if you're Boston to make the smart one less of a no-brainer I'd still make it to your point yes I'd lose more sleep over it than the first one but I would still make it and you know put yourself in tremendous position to win at least one championship over the next couple years did you make anything of the Jalen Brown tweet is that like so yeah, great segue. I was about to me yeah mention that that Jalen Brown, for his part, tweeted shaking my head. SMH. Uh, Jason Tatum has taken the diplomatic approach. I think he was he was asked by Nick Ferdell of ESPN at uh, at a movie premiere or something yesterday um, about his thoughts on, it, and he just said, you know, Kevin Durant's a great player, but he also loves his team, and it's not his decision to make those kind of calls. Sure, did I make something of Jalen Brown's tweet? Yes, but what I made out of it, I don't know because the shaking my head could mean anything. It could be shaking my head, 
these fans and reporters are so dumb for believing this when actually Brad Stevens has told me I'm not going. Like, I don't know. We don't know that. We don't know those conversations. Or it could be shaking my head. I can't believe these damn Celtics put me in trade rumors after I helped them get to the finals. I don't mm. trust this franchise. I'm never going to play for them again after my contract ends. It could be shaking my head at whatever show he was watching at the time. I mean, I, I highly doubt that's the case. I think it was something obviously related to the to the trade, but which side of that, I'm not sure because, you know, we don't know. For, for all we know, the Brad Stevens and other Celtics front office brass might have already had a conversation with Jalen Brown, right? Like I think... Yeah. Uh, Windhorse came out after these reports and said, this isn't new. This These offers were bandied about like weeks ago. It's just coming out now. So for all we know, they've already had a talk with Jalen Brown about, look, your name came up in Kevin Durant. Or maybe they told him, hey, Brooklyn wants you. We don't want to give you up. I don't know. Which side of it you're on with the shaking my head tweet depends on, I guess, what and when Jalen Brown knew. Because it could be it could be a pro-Celtics, anti-media fan shaking my head, or obviously it could be a feeling betrayed shaking my head yeah it's it's unfortunate because <laughs> and i don't know what like what the context of that tweet was so uh you know i guess we can let that mystery be but it is unfortunate let me just send, me just send an email here to celtics pr and see if they'll comment <laughs> on Jalen brown's um, no it's unfortunate that like Jalen Brown can look at his body of work and what he is, has done, what he's meant to the Celtics teams o- over the last few years and say, this is bullshit. Like, it's really unfair <laughs> that you keep putting me in these trade rumors, like dangling me out there, like trying to get, you know, he, the Kawhi Leonard trade discussions, the Anthony Davis trade discussions, and now like the KD thing. It's like, That would be tough. You know, if you feel like you want to be in a particular place, you don't necessarily want to be traded. You feel like you have played your ass off for a team and this is how they reward you. But the the sort of unfortunate reality is he just is in that sweet spot where he is a very good player who is just not quite good enough to be in like the untouchable tier, you know, in the way that Tatum clearly is for Boston. But is good enough to be the centerpiece of a trade for a better player. You know, like that's, that's just the the position that he's in. And it's like, you know, the cruel irony of players in that position is like, well, if you hadn't played this well, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Like we wouldn't be talking about potentially including you as the centerpiece of a KD trade. I mean, that's just like the cruel reality of the business of basketball. And, and it sucks sometimes, but I don't know. I mean, I guess, do you feel like, okay, well, now that this is out there and now that it's maybe accumulated over the last few years because Jalen Brown's name keeps appearing in these trade conversations, do you feel like there's a point at which Boston just needs to like move him already because they risk him just getting disgruntled or disillusioned? And maybe that does help nudge him out the door two years from now when he becomes a UFA? Yes, I do. Because... I also believe Jalen... Do I believe Jalen Brown could be like the best player on a title contending team? No. Do I think he's really good? Yes. I'm I'm on the same page as you where he's in that perfect middle ground where he's good enough to, you know, make over the next two years $55 million and he's going to get a huge contract after that. And he's good enough to be the centerpiece of potential superstar trade, but he's just not good enough himself to be that superstar. But I believe he believes he can be, right? Obviously, because he's at the level where he's at he's good enough already and at his age where he can definitely convince himself he can be that guy. And so 
if there's a team two years from now, and there almost surely will be, that will give him the max that another team can give him while also offering him that opportunity to prove to the world he can be that guy, I think he will take that opportunity and run. And I'm not going to say they don't appreciate him because I think they do. I think the Celtics and Celtics fans, I think they do understand his value. I think that's part of why he is in these talks all the time. I can understand from his perspective why he might see it as they don't appreciate his value and everything he's done. And all of that snowballing together is why, if you recall, one of my bold predictions for like this past season was, and half of it was obviously proven woefully incorrect because the Celtics ended up making the finals. It looked great through half a season, but my prediction coming into the year was that the Celtics would stumble and have a disappointing season and that it would finally lead to a Jalen Brown trade. A big part of me making that prediction was because of all this. And this was before he even was in the, in Kevin Durant trade talk. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, I do think all like this will accumulate and lead to him either finally being dealt or walking in two years. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't get inside Jalen Brown's head and you don't know how much this is affecting him or not affecting him. But I do think it is a, you know, a good reminder of just the chaos that gets sown anytime a superstar player asks to be traded, you know, not just for the team that that superstar currently plays for, but like for other teams around the league. You know, like I'm remembering back to that whole AD calamity a few years back. And it didn't just throw the Pelicans into turmoil. Like it also threw the Lakers into turmoil and the Celtics as well. Like because suddenly, you know, all these players are like hearing their names thrown around in trade rumors and hearing that they might be shipped off elsewhere. And it's like, how does that not affect your locker room? Like, how does that not change your headspace? So I think... Anytime something like this happens, like there's a real, it just sends shockwaves through the league and, and things can kind of get shaken loose in a number of different places. Yeah. Ask DeMar DeRozan about how one player, one superstar's trade demand and want out of town can lead to another star in a faraway place's life being turned upside down, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, also part of why, like, listen, Anyone who's listened to this or followed me over the years knows I'm pro player. I'm very pro uh, players taking control of their own and charge of their own careers and and trying to navigate their ways to where you know where they want to be. If they have the power to do it, they should do it. Like take advantage of that. But it is also a reminder that like when we say we're pro player or that when we do support players taking matters into their own hands remembering that it also affects other players sometimes adversely and negatively, right? Like it's not just like, all right, we're pro player and like we want the best players to take matters into their own hands and it's like rah, rah and every player benefits from it. It's like, no, a lot of players actually don't benefit from it. So that is something to keep in mind yeah. when we talk about the era of player empowerment is it's it's the era of player empowerment for a very select few stars and that group is so select that even a player as good as Jalen Brown is at 25 years old doesn't even make the cut for that select group. Yeah, and I often go back to something Damian Lillard said a few years ago, and, like, you know, Dame's not perfect by any means, and, uh, you know, he likes to present himself as this uber-loyal, altruistic type of star, and I think some of that is genuine and Maybe some of it isn't, but I continue to come back to this quote that he had. It was in a Jason Quick story in The Athletic where he was kind of explaining part of the reason that he never has felt comfortable demanding a trade. And 
the reason that he cited was that it doesn't just affect him. Like it affects all these other players. And then like, not like, you know, multiple other players are going to wind up having their lives uprooted and getting traded elsewhere. And he doesn't want to have that on his conscience. And I think that's, that's very interesting, like as a way to think about it and a way that a lot of stars clearly don't think about things, which is again, fine. And I've talked about all the reasons that like, I think that's okay because at the end of the day, NBA superstars are kind of like, they're sort of subsidizing like the league's middle class in a lot of ways. And the fact that there are max salaries and that redistributes the money and balances things out. Like it's not entirely fair to the superstar class, you know, like they're not earning what they're truly worth. And so their way of kind of putting their fingers on the scales and tilting the sort of power dynamics and the leverage back in their favor is, is to make these power plays and to demand trades when they feel like they want to get somewhere else. But I just think, I think about that often, what, what Dame said. And um, I do think there is something, there's something noble about that as cheesy as that sounds and as cheesy as Dame can be (laughs) and as disingenuous as I think he can be in some cases, like, I return to that often and and think about it a lot. Words of wisdom from Dame that perhaps more players should adhere to. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about other lingering questions that remain in this offseason that we have as we inch towards the back half of the summer, I guess. (laughs) What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Scores YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Will Fond, Kevin Durant's name's still out there, Donovan Mitchell's name's still out there, um... Other than that, offseason is mostly settled, but we both still have questions left unanswered. So let's start with you. Mm-hmm. What is your first big offseason question that's still lingering out there? So I didn't include the Donovan Mitchell thing because we talked right. about that already, and yeah. I don't have much else to say about it at this point. So I think my my biggest remaining question is, what is going to break this stalemate between Colin Sexton and the Cavs? Because he is the biggest RFA who remains unsigned. I mean, basically the biggest free agent that remains unsigned, uh, non-Miles Bridges division. And I'm curious, like, how it's going to end. Like, is it going to end with another team putting an offer sheet in front of him? And that team, I guess, has to be like the Pacers or Spurs. I don't know that any other team has cap space left. But, you know, I think, honestly, either one of those teams could actually really use Colin Sexton and he would be a, a, a super interesting fit on either one of them. So I would love to see that not just as a way to break the stalemate, but as a way to actually try and get him because I, you know, contrary to the Deandre Ayton thing where I think it was very clear that the Suns were going to match no matter what, I actually think there's a chance, you know, depending on w- what the structure of that offer sheet looks like, I think there's a chance that one of those teams could actually pry him away if they really yeah. wanted to. So does it come to that? Uh, you know, or will he and the Cavs meet somewhere in the middle in their negotiations? It seems like they're very far apart. Uh, the 
I, I can't remember where I saw it reported, but I feel like I saw it reported that the Cavs offer was something like three years, 39 million or something kind of insulting like that. That, yeah. That is um, insulting. So can they meet in the middle? Will there be a sign and trade or will he just take the qualifying offer and become an unrestricted free agent next year? Like that's, I'm interested to see where this goes because I think, and I say this as somebody who was a Colin Sexton skeptic his first couple of years in the league. I feel like he's become underrated, honestly, I agree. like super explosive guard, great scorer, uh, a good slasher, a, historically a really good three-point shooter two years ago he averaged over 24 points on really solid efficiency you know it was 51 percent from two 37 percent from three got to the line a ton uh, and obviously this knee injury is a big concern but as a young player coming off an acl tear like i it's not i feel like modern medicine is such that like that is not an injury that derails careers anymore so I don't think that I like that. That doesn't seem to me like something that should be a huge concern, maybe more of a concern and like an ongoing concern is the defense, uh, though. I do think he's improved a lot as an on ball guy in recent years off ball. No, he hasn't. That's still a big issue. Uh, and he's still not much of a playmaker. So I think the issue you get into with him is like the, the playmaking is less of an issue if you just play him exclusively at the two. Yeah, which is the cap which the Cavs would basically be doing because of the emergence of Garland, obviously. Uh, and then you don't worry as much about the playmaking, but you get into other issues because he is six foot one and struggles defensively. So, you know, finding the right environment where you can play him as a full-time two and where he can thrive offensively without really compromising you at the other end, that, that becomes difficult. So you know, I, I th- there are reasons why I guess he hasn't been signed yet, and and why the stalemate is persisting. But I, I just think that Sexton's actually like pretty good, and the fact that he is still unsigned and there doesn't seem to be any kind of movement toward him being signed is fairly surprising. Yeah, he's the classic two guard that like would be perfectly suited beside the type of point guard who's much more of just like an initiator and defender at the point of attack that doesn't yeah. actually the dominate Marcus the Smart. ball. Right, exactly. Like that doesn't actually dominate the ball that much and the two guard can dominate the ball while kind of taking it easy on, def- on defense, even though a team would never actually prefer that. But yeah, I wonder if the ultimate end result here is him taking the qualifying offer because look, I know, you know, money is money. It's always a risk, especially for a player that has had a serious injury already. But if those reports are true about like that $39 million contract, I get it. It's still, you know, 30 million more basically than what the qualifying offer would be, but it's a lot easier to make that decision and sit and forego that money and just take the qualifying offer. Hopefully have a good year, hit unrestricted free agency next year. Then it would be, if it's like, you know, there was a $60 million, like if he thought he was a max player, but it, the, the Cavs are only willing to go like 360 or something. And it's like, it's still well below what he wants overall. But it's also like fifty million guaranteed more than the qualifying offer. That's a much tougher decision. When we're talking like thirty nine versus the qualifying offer, I think that's leading to a a road where the end of that road is him taking the qualifying offer, playing on it, you know, betting on himself, hitting unrestricted free agency, and you know, in addition to just the complicating factors that creates for the Cavs from a financial standpoint, like future planning standpoint. 
it also creates some tension, I would assume. Not that I think it would make like players dislike Sexton or anything, but it it does make for an awkward situation, right? If the player comes back to the team after taking the qualifying offer, after publicly being insulted in his own mind by the offer the team put out there, and now just kind of rejoining the team while everyone knows he's also trying to do best by him and like get his own numbers up so that he can hit unrestricted free agency on a high but it's also a team that now has some expectations because of how last season went and they are trying to build towards something like yeah. all of a sudden the agendas like aren't on the same page right as as they would be if he was just a happy camper coming back on a new deal or whatever the case may be so i could see this ending with a qualifying offer and him getting unrestricted free agency in 2023 but i can also envision ways where that could disrupt things here as the Cavs build forward and especially in the immediate future. Yeah. Man, I really think the Pacers should just put like a four-year, $80 million offer sheet in front of him. Like I I think he'd be, look, I think he'd be great beside Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah, definitely. You know, again, that's a defensively limited backcourt. Like that would be a concern, but it's a young team that doesn't need to win games right away. And I think both of those guys have room to improve defensively and at least you know like Halliburton has the physical tools I think to be a a solid defender like certainly to be better than he's been to this point in his career like he is long you could you know essentially if he reaches his defensive potential you could just sort of hide Sexton a little bit like put him on the opposing team's least threatening perimeter player and probably survive that way like I think offensively that's uh, offensively that's a really interesting backcourt pairing if you're thinking long-term. And I just, I don't really see why, why they wouldn't spring for that. Like if, again, it's, you know, the Aiton thing, good for them for actually putting the offer sheet on the table. But I think they had to know, or at least feel like there was a very, very slim chance that they were actually going to get Aiton. Whereas this is a chance to actually get a good young player in the door without giving anything up except for some money. Um, also just to note, like Halliburton had elite defensive metrics and measurables coming out of college that usually translate to the pro game. So I'm not saying that automatically means, you know, in a couple of years, you'll be an impact defender, but I do think the tools and some sort of like background is there where I could yeah. see him becoming a good NBA defender as a guard. And, uh, and then, yeah, offensively, I think he fits with Sexton as well. Sexton was one of mine as well, but I'm going to go with... What will and what can the Heat do over the rest of the summer? Because, and I know it's like the very obvious thing, like the Pat Riley teams are always in for stars. They always want to find a way to get them. But between Kevin Durant and Donovan Mitchell, the Heat have come up in talks for both. Now, the Kevin Durant thing is complicated because they can't include Bam Adebayo unless Ben Simmons is traded as well because the designated rookie rule, which is basically that a team can have two players on its roster that sign five-year extensions off their rookie skill deals, but only one of those two players can be a, have been acquired via trade. And with Simmons already there in Brooklyn, Bam would also be via trade, so those two can't be there. Complicated things. They're not really in the KD mix. Then you hear about them in the Mitchell mix and a, a package centered around Tyler Hero, which I do not believe will be enough to get Donovan Mitchell. But the point is the Heat are kind of always in these discussions, right? And I think... Part of it is the easy, you can point to the Pat Riley wanting stars, whatever. But I think the other part of it is that Pat Riley and this front office, I think know deep down 
that although they finished with the one seed last year and Jimmy Butler is what he is in the playoffs, like I, I do feel like deep down this front office knows they actually can't win a championship as presently constructed. And maybe they can get close, but they're actually not quite good enough. And whether it's a star or something else, I think if we're acknowledging that a Pat Riley-led front office thinks that, I think then we also have to acknowledge that he's out looking to make a move. And so my question is like twofold. And like I said, in what will they do, but also more what can they do? Because Bam being there makes it tough to send them to certain places. Tyler Hero is a really good player for what he does, but also I'm not convinced is good enough to be the centerpiece of a star trade. So it's like, then you start looking at it and it's like, well, is there really anything they can even do that makes them noticeably better than, than they already are? Um, and so that just makes them a really fascinating team for me as the summer continues because, yeah, they could easily stand pat and bring back the team that finished with the one seed in the East, but there also seems to be something missing there, and I think they know it. And so they obviously want to address it, but I don't know if they actually can. Yeah, I think it's going to be tough. Uh, like they have, what do they have? Like two future first rounders essentially that they can put on the table. Yeah. And swaps. Like it's it's just not a lot to work with. If you want to talk about like meaningful, like needle moving trade. I don't think they want to trade BAM. Yeah, I think if there was a way that they could like flip Lowry into an upgrade, they would jump at the chance to do that. But I don't think there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm around the league for Kyle Lowry after the way that his last season ended. And I don't know. I mean, like it's not they're not in a terrible place because they're still a really good team. And Jimmy Butler is honestly showing next to no signs of age related decline. despite the fact that his jump shot is like basically falling apart. Every other aspect of his game has either like remained as good as it ever was or improved. So I think they can be reasonably assured that like Jimmy Butler is going to be Jimmy Butler, at least for this season and maybe the next couple of years. They can hope that the Lowry we saw at the end of the season was just an injured Lowry that is not going to be reflective of the kind of player that, you know, he was maybe going to be next season or is still capable of being. You know, they have a couple players as part of their core in, in Bam and Hero who are still young and can improve. There's not a ton of upward mobility there is the thing. Like they, uh, I don't know, I say all this and I'm like, well, it just seems like so much would have to go right for them to to actually be in championship contention again. But like, it didn't really play out that way this past season. Like a lot went wrong for them and they still wound up yeah. a Jimmy Butler three-pointer away from making the finals. So as the one seed. So, I mean, maybe they do have enough, but as far as like making one of those big meaningful upgrades that the Heat have become known for making, I just don't think that's in the cards for them. So then you get into thinking about like, okay, well, what's what's something they could do kind of on the margins that might really help them? You know, a, a smaller move that could pay big dividends. And I don't know. I mean, what what do you think that kind of move would look like for them? Like, what do they need more than anything that they can actually realistically acquire? I mean, I think it all comes back down to Lowry and what we thought he would bring to them versus what he actually brought to them in the aggregate over the course of the season. And like just a, a different dimension to their offense mm -hmm. and more of a, I know obviously Butler is that too, but like more of a North South 
uh, attacking option, a pick and roll threat that can diversify their offense. And again, when when Kyle was healthy earlier in the year, they got that, but they didn't. I still don't think they got it to the extent that we thought they'd get it. Right? Like even if you consider like the Larry Bam pick and roll that everyone was somewhat excited about coming into the season, we didn't really didn't see enough of that. But how do you really make a Kyle Lowry upgrade given the contract he's now on? And I don't really know how many moves along the margins they can make. And that, that's what I'm saying. Well, they're such a fascinating team for me right now because it's like, it feels like the only moves worthwhile for them would be like a really big team shaking move. But then they also don't, I don't think, have the assets to get that done. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why the question becomes like, what what will they slash can they do over the next two months leading into October? the answer might just be zero. Like I might be answering my own question and, and it's nothing. Don't get me wrong. It is not the worst thing in the world to go into the season with what the Heat currently have. It's just, I think they're they're very much a really good, just not good enough team. Yeah. And then also, I mean, they lost PJ Tucker and didn't yeah. really didn't really replace his uh, spot in the rotation, which is, um, I, I mean, the, the season before, they had lost Jay Crowder and didn't really replace him. And we saw how much that impacted them. Then they, a year later, replaced him with PJ Tucker, who had a great season for them, was a really wonderful fit. Uh, And now he's out the door. And again, they kind of have that same hole at the four, right? Like, I'm not sure what they're going to do with that spot. So that's something I guess they could look at. And maybe it's an in-season thing where they look to upgrade there. If but, there's one uh, thing we can say about the Heat, throw a bunch of letters together, create a name you've never heard of before, and that guy who had played 16 G League games before that will come in and become a key contributor for them, like starting in January. Yeah. Or, hey, maybe uh, if they want a guy with some north-south juice to make their offense a little bit more dynamic, I know a guy who's unsigned Yeah, would give them plenty of that. Maybe there's a sign-and-trade to be had there right. with them and the Cavs. What goes the other way, though? Hero's better than Colin Sexton right now. Yeah, no, no, they wouldn't do that. What I what I would imagine it would look like would be something like just Duncan Robinson's salary and like draft compensation. Picks. Yeah, I mean, look, it's not. I I think the Cavs would hope for more, but I don't actually think that's bad business on their end. Like, add some shooting while also adding some draft capital to a young growing team like I, I don't think that would actually be the worst thing yeah. for the Cavs either um, and I do think that's a really interesting I mean the only thing like Miami's kind of got I feel like they need more help in the front court like they got a lot of guard depth yeah. even though they don't have a guard quite like Sexton you know they still have Lowry and Hero and Oladipo who yeah. you know you don't want to rely on Oladipo but he's there Struess Vincent like they're kind of they're closer to being set in the backcourt, I feel like, than they are in the front court. Like, I think I think they might need more help at like the three and four spots. But uh, yeah, no, it's they're in an interesting spot, and I'm definitely curious to see how they can kind of maneuver their way out of the corner that they have painted themselves into. Which, like you have mentioned, is not the worst corner to be painted into at all. Again, this team was very close to making the finals last year, and is still really good. So, definitely a team to watch uh, for. All of those reasons. And Oladipo, man, I mean, like that's maybe that's the swing piece for them. I just, Oladipo and a healthier, fitter Lowry could mean a world of difference. Yes. All right. My next unanswered question. What are the Pacers doing? Are they are they done <laughs> dealing? Like, and again, we mentioned them 
and like the Sexton situation, maybe they jump into the mix there, but like was the Aiden offer sheet, was that their big play and that's it, they're done? Are they gonna go into the season with Miles Turner on the roster after they just effectively tried to replace him for like the hundredth time and dangled him in trade talks for the eighth year in a row? Like they're they're gonna start the season with Miles Turner on the roster again because look, there are still a bunch of teams out there who I feel like could really use him. And I'm just, I can't believe that they haven't found a trade yet that works, you know, with like the Hornets, with the Raptors, with the Wizards, maybe with the Mavs, you know, like with what other teams like the Nets, if the Nets want to stay competitive, which they definitely do, uh, the Clippers, you know, like the Clippers, their backup center right now is Robert Covington, I guess. And I I know that's kind of how they want to play, but maybe they want to upgrade the Zubach spot in their rotation. Like, and I, you know how much they value shooting. So getting someone who's a, a better defensive center than Zubach, who can also space the floor would look pretty appealing for them. And they have like a billion wings that they could trade from if they wanted to make that happen. Like, I, I feel like there are a lot of options, like too many options out there for Miles Turner to still be a pacer. So and with one year left on his contract, like they can't risk losing him for like, even if it's like salary filler and a first round pick, take it because it's better than nothing, which is mm-hmm. what you're going to lose him for a year from now when he inevitably walks. I wouldn't start the season with him because I I do think if, if he's healthy, Miles Turner is still good enough for like the Pacers might win 26 games instead of 23. And those three games, you know, I, I like it's a half joke, but it's not really because a few games here and there could skew your lottery odds for a team that very much should be in lottery mode, which I think they are. Get that deal done. Yes. So, I mean, that's that that's the big one. And then I think Buddy Heald is like another obvious yeah. trade candidate who probably doesn't have as much value as Miles Turner around the league, but is still. I don't know. You think you think they can get a first round? No, they can't get a first rounder for Buddy Heald. But and I don't know. Like Royce O'Neal got a fetched a first rounder. Yeah, that's true. And like I think Heald's on an expiring, right? So, yeah, expire. No, so he's got two years left. Actually, he's uh, got two years, twenty point five this coming year, and then like eighteen point six. It goes down. I I don't know what anyone thinks of Heald out there. I think his shooting ability and offensive abilities, even with the defensive uh, holes in his game. I still think that's a for, on a short term window perspective a, a fine deal. Like I don't think you're handcuffing yourself by trading for Buddy Heald with you know 38 million O'Tim over the next two years. I still kind of can't believe that the Jazz flipped Royce O'Neal for a first round yeah. pick um, to the Nets of all teams. That's just and, that 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 remains the most bizarre trade of the offseason so far. Yo, know, even TJ McConnell, like he's got two guaranteed years left at like eight million a year like that's another guy i've talked about it when i talked about the pacers being in like teardown mold potentially for the first time in 30 plus years mcconnell's another guy that could maybe fetch them something and i think could actually help some good teams out there yeah i would say you know if if the lakers can't make something work with the nets to get Kyrie, there's got to be a deal to be worked out between them and the Pacers, right? Where like they yeah. can get Turner and healed and like the, the Pacers just absorb Russ and maybe get both of those Lakers first rounders or one of them unprotected. Like there's gotta be something there, right? 
like Heald and Turner might, in my opinion, still be rich and too rich for the Lakers to get based on their limited. Um, but like one of those guys, even I think the Pacers are the team that makes sense for them based on what they've got to deal. Yeah. Well, so this is, I don't know if one Lakers first rounder would be enough to move the Pacers to both take on Russ and presumably just buy him out and, you know, give up Turner and Heald. I don't know if that's, these are the picks that the Lakers can deal 2027 and 2029. If they can get both of those picks, I think that's like, that should be done yesterday. I don't know if the Lakers would, I mean, especially because they're seemingly holding out for the Kyrie thing and they're going to need both of those picks, I think, to get that deal done. But I, I don't know if Turner and Heald is enough for them, just in terms of opportunity cost. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like where they can maybe hold out for something better using those picks. Like that's... Well, I don't know, and I don't, and I don't, I don't know if one one of them is enough to get it done. I mean, maybe one of them plus Taylor Horton Tucker, something like that. Yeah, he's still around. <laughs> Not quite the same trade value he had a year and a little bit ago, which I still don't understand. Yeah, I mean, look, it's hard for the Lakers to really do or plan for anything when uh, LeBron's future is pretty murky in and of itself. My, yeah, well, I mean, they should they should be doing everything they can to demurkify his future, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, to clarify his future. All right. My last offseason question is, do the Mavericks find a way to land another type of initiating, like offensive initiating guard in the wake of late losing Jalen Brunson? Because you mean Colin Sexton? Hey, <laughs> maybe. But if you remember when they traded for Christian Wood, I'm like, I think I'm hired on that trade than even most people are. I think Wood's actually a really nice fit there. Mm-hmm. I think he can have a great, even if it's just one year there and builds his value up, I think he can be great there with Luca. I loved that deal. I thought the Mavs became like sneaky might be an interesting word, given that they just did go to the conference finals, but I don't know how much people actually believe in that team. So I was still going to say, I think that wood acquisition actually made them like a sneaky contender. Had they been able to keep Brunson, they of course did not keep Brunson. And so I think they took a hit there. And for a team that already just, so painfully relied on Luca and put an insane burden on this guy's shoulder from an offensive like initiation and creation perspective. Losing their next best guy in that regard is really going to hurt both player and team. And so I think that's the obvious thing they need to address if they want to actually compete for a title this season, even as great as Luca is. But again, similar to what we were talking about with Miami and even worse than that, because they don't even have like a, a hero, a bam, whatever. It's like the Mavs really are kind of out of assets. Like they don't have much young controllable talent. Their draft capital isn't great. It kind of becomes like what what can they do to address that hole? Or do they think that like Tim Hardaway Jr. returning from foot surgery after breaking his foot and Spencer Dinwiddie can combine to fill some of that hole? In my opinion, no, they cannot. But... Mm -hmm. Do they trick themselves into believing that going into the season and just relying on the magic of Luca? I don't think they should, but I think it's an interesting question because they, they, in my opinion, they need to fill that hole, but I'm not sure they can. And this, to your point, would be a really interesting Sexton match. The Mavs were also one of the teams reported to be in on like the Kyrie talks. Again, I don't think yeah. they have enough, but we'll see. Of the teams that were contenders last season, I don't think there's a team that took a bigger hit 
this offseason than they did in just losing Brunson for nothing. Yeah. And it's like they they were already in a position where it felt like Luca had to do a little bit too much for their offense. And I think they started last season to find a bit more of an equilibrium as Brunson was able to take on more and more of that playmaking load. And then obviously Dinwiddie arriving helped that even more. And now it's just like all of those on-ball reps are just out the door. <laughs> like I, they're, they're not even back to square one. Like they're back, they're, they're, they've been set back even further than they were a couple of years ago when it just seemed like all they had to rely on from a creation standpoint was Luca. And they're basically still in that position. Like Dinwiddie had a good run with them last year, but man, I just don't, I don't know. Like he's, you don't want him to be your secondary ball handler no. at this point. So no. uh, yeah, if there's a way that they can figure that out, then that would be great. Like, yeah, if they can work out a sign and trade for Sexton, I think that would really benefit them. Uh, I don't know what they have to trade like they you know like what what do they have to offer in a in a potential trade framework like that uh i mean a whole lot of nothing if we're being honest like you look at their their books it's like no one i don't especially coming off the broken foot i don't think anyone's taking tim hardaway jr and the three years like 53 million dollars left on his deal Mm -hmm. um Bertans making 33 over the next two. Christian Wood, obviously, they just traded for on an expiring. Dorian Finney-Smith. I don't think the Mavs can afford to trade him. Like, he is yeah. so, so important to their defense. If that if they were willing to put him on the table, like, that's a done deal. I feel like the, the Cavs in particular yeah, need, he'd a, be a great need, a, need a Dorian Finney-Smith. But that's, yeah. not, that's not happening. And I don't actually yeah. think that the Mavs should do that. Like, he is... Dorian Finney-Smith's really good. Um... But like, okay, so like Jaden Hardy, who they just drafted, and like you attach some salary to him. I don't know. Which look, Hardy is a high upside guy that a lot of you know draft experts feel the Mavs got a steal there. So who knows? Maybe there is value there, and like Hardy plus other salary filler, you start putting like a pick or two on the table. Their draft cupboard isn't exactly overflowing i mean they don't have any extra picks incoming they owe their 2023 first to new york from the Porzingis trade which you know it's doubly sucks for them because that's also the team that took brunson from them it's top 10 protected but so they're, they're most likely going to give that pick to the knicks this year so they can't right now trade their 2024 first rounder they can make it a swap they can trade a 2025 first rounder it's hard to come up with a mavs package that can get them the type of impact offensive initiator, like secondary creator they would need. If their best non-Doncic asset is Dorian Finney-Smith, who is the glue of their improved defense. Yeah. What are they, like, how are they getting this done? Well, I just think their best, their best path is uh, to like use cap space in a couple of years and just kind of like ride out the next couple of years as best they can and hope. That's, I don't disagree with you, but that's a pretty bad, <laughs> that's a bad path. I think they've got a path to potentially max space as early as next summer. Yes, because Dinwiddie and Bullock have non-guaranteed, their their contracts for 2023-2024 are non-fully guaranteed. Powell's coming off the books after next season. Yeah. Uh, again, Bullock's got the non-guarantee, like you mentioned. Uh 
Kleba is also coming off the books. I mean, I, I imagine they want to retain him, but like, yeah, they they have a path to max space as early as next summer. So it's really just one year. And obviously that's yeah. contingent on them actually being able to sign somebody. Yeah. And now I have to think about or look up who like the free agents are going to be next year. Right. That would make sense for them. But, you know, it would really only be one year that they would have to ride things out as currently constructed. And again, you still have Luca at the center of everything and a pretty strong defensive infrastructure around him. So it's not like they're going to be bad. I just don't like they're not going to have the upside that they had last season. Um, and it really is a shame, man, because, again, I not to beat a dead horse here, but really like that Christian Wood pick, I just thought was so under the radar perfect for them. And if they had kept Brunson and just added Wood to what they had, I, I really think they could have been like a sneaky true title contender. Um, they are very much not that now. Yeah. So who can who can be a free agent in 2023? You got James Harden, potentially. You got the one plus one. He could opt out, go sign with the Mavs, play with Luka, the <laughs> younger version of himself. Yeah. Actually, man, Harden and Luka on the same team would be legitimately hilarious. A lot of upset viewers, yeah. <laughs> but this is even something like we, we talked about with the Mavs in the past where we're always trying to figure out, okay, like what is their path? Yeah, towards something greater than this. Like, how do they get to like? Is Brunson going to grow into that guy, or is it going to need to be a situation where they just wait it out until Porzingis's money comes off the books, and now that has become Bertans's money and Dinwiddie's money coming off of the books? But like, just wait it out until they can clear some space and go the free agency route. Like that was always sort of the best path for them. I felt like, and maybe Brunson leaving has just sort of expedited that. You know how I feel about it, like even going back to last year. And again, I know they ended up making the conference finals, but it, it does feel like there was some missed opportunity here given how good Luka Doncic was immediately. And the results maybe don't indicate that because they did get to a conference finals, but they've missed a couple chances, in my opinion, where they could have, you know, had they had more flexibility, built better supporting cast against a guy that really needs one. Maybe and maybe me, that's uh, maybe that's where LeBron signs next. Wow. Well, now we're getting real knee deep into it. Like, <laughs> how many more hours do you want to talk today, Wolfon? Uh, you have any more lingering offseason questions besides where will LeBron end up? I mean, the last the last one I had, we've sort of already hit on, which is just uh, how how are the Lakers going to get themselves out of this Russell Westbrook mess? And I, I do think you know, like. Even if the Kyrie thing doesn't work out, there should still be other avenues to improving the team and moving on from Russ. Like I think actually Utah is maybe a potentially interesting team that could yeah, there's looking to stockpile draft picks. They absorb Russ, they get one of the Lakers picks, like you know, twenty twenty seven or twenty twenty nine. I think for the Lakers you probably want some protections on that pick, but like that and in exchange for Conley like I, I think Conley could actually really work there yeah so yeah like I I don't think they would put both of the picks on the table to get that done in fact I, I definitely don't think they would um but if that only cost them a single first rounder and if they could be like lotto protect it get Conley in the door and instead of Russ like a much much better fit for their roster I don't know if that's putting them back in like title contention but it's certainly making the team a lot, a lot more sensible on paper. Yeah, I mean, my my answer would be I I 
to how they get out of it is that they don't. Then they might just be stuck with this for another year. And, uh, oh boy. Another year with LeBron potentially set to become a free agent a year from not, now. Not, not out of choice. Not out of choice that they'd be stuck with it. But, like, I don't know how much they can actually do, man. Well, this is what I'm saying. I think it would be by choice because I do think that there is stuff that they can do. Like, they have two first-round picks to offer. And I just have to feel like those are super valuable first-round picks, which is why I would understand maybe the, the Lakers being reluctant to part with them. Right. But I just feel like they have to, I don't know, they have to find a way to take care of the situation that's right in front of their faces right now. And yeah. that is figuring out a way to get LeBron to buy back in and commit for, you know, a, a, at least a couple more years beyond this next one because he clearly is over the Russell Westbrook thing, even though he was the one who helped orchestrate yeah. it in the first place. He's clearly done with it and does not want to play another season with Russ. So I feel like they, they need to figure it out, but I'm thinking about, okay, like a 2027 Lakers pick. Do you like that could be an insanely good pick? I completely agree. So there's gotta be something they can do. Even if it's, even if it's not Kyrie, just don't trust this bum front office to actually do it. So uh, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's like the Pacers package, man. Get get Buddy Heald and Miles Turner in the door. Dude, that would be a home run if they did that. Like even if they had to put both of those first rounders on the table, because then that's, that's then maybe a ground rule. Maybe a ground rule double. No more moves to make, and I I still don't think they're good enough to win it or even like meaningfully compete for a title. So you, okay, you don't think LeBron AD. Heel and Turner, you don't think they can even realistically compete for a title? <sighs> Come on. Like, I'm low on this Lakers team. I feel like if you give LeBron and AD Heald and Turner, like, you have to at least give them a chance to compete for the title. Now, I'm not saying they'll win it, and I'm not even, like, and those picks will still sting years from now when, you know, if the Lakers don't pull another Lakers and sign a great free agent to save them, like, if the Lakers are who they've been for the majority of the last nine years, yeah, in a post-LeBron world, they're going to be down in the dumps, and those picks are going to be insanely valuable. All right, so you talk about, you know, how old's Luca? Twenty-three. Yeah. At this point, yeah. I don't know. Twenty. You talk about twenty-three-year-old Luka Doncic not having enough help in terms of like complementary ball handling and secondary creation. Who's the secondary creator on that Lakers team? <laughs> With no, LeBron, it's, LeBron it's, AD, Buddy Heald, and Miles Turner. It's bad, man, but... It's disastrous. It is. And and LeBron's like I've, 37. You dude, know? As I've written about, as I've talked about, as we've, you know, bantered about on this show, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but it's like, I, I also am not sitting here shedding tears when the problem was created by a bum front office and LeBron himself. Like, I'm not shedding tears either. Oh, I'm yeah. just saying I don't think that that team is a championship contender. I don't either, but I do think <laughs> if you give no, if you put sorry, if you put Buddy Heald and Miles Turner there, I think you have to at least give them a puncher's chance. Like no, what I'm saying is like if that if that is the trade, and I'm not saying they should hang on to Russ because they need a secondary ball hand. Like we know that it, it doesn't work. We've seen it not work. But if they're trading him and not pulling back, you know, like a complimentary ball handler, then it's like, I don't know. It's so what about a whole lot on what the if they shoulders. what if they get TJ McConnell in that deal? Okay, now we're talking because that I actually think that makes a lot of sense. I think McConnell would help the Lakers a lot. Yeah. 
Turner, I guess getting Turner would help AD continue to play the four, allow him to play the four while still giving him the space to be like a dive man in the pick and yeah. roll. Whereas like the last couple of years, the centers they put next to AD, you know, like your, your DeAndre Jordans and Andre Drummond's and Dwight Howard's like when AD is playing the four in those lineups, he's like spotting up on the perimeter a lot of the time because there's yeah. no room for him to, to dive or to post up. But it's like, Turner can be your spot up guy. Turner can be your four on offense and your five on defense. Like, yes, that is a good front court fit, but they, they would still need to find, I think a, some supplemental creation because. It's- right. And that, so what, that's what I was going to say. I think Turner helps in the front court, obviously makes them allows AD to continue to play the four, the way he wants to do it, but in a more interchangeable way on like offense to defense so Turner, fine, but then like, do you get McConnell instead of healed, right? Like, can you go Turner McConnell? And I know Heald's the better overall player, better shooter, whatever. But like McConnell, they, they really need the shooting too, though. Like, oh, I know, but like, but then, well, I don't know. Like, well, it's what do you value more then, and what do you think they need more? The extra like ball handling, or I don't know. That's the problem with this team. They have too many holes to plug, and not enough well, ways. Fire to them into the sun, and let's never tell. Like, I don't know. <laughs> what do you? Uh, no, I do think like we're, we're sort of talking around this, but at the end of the day, AD might be the biggest swing piece in the entire league this year. You know, like if he is the Anthony Davis that he was last year, the Lakers have no hope they're going absolutely nowhere. Yeah. If he is the AD that he was, you know, during the bubble season, then yeah, they can contend almost regardless of the pieces that they put around those two guys. Like this is still contingent on LeBron remaining somewhat healthy and recommitting to defense if that's if he's incapable of doing that at this point but like there's such a big bandwidth i feel like between what they could be and what they are more likely to be and it's just based on what they actually get from anthony davis yeah well all these questions we've asked will continue to linger (laughs) unless you've got anything else to add no, I do not. 75 minutes in, we'll find. All right. Fan shout out this week goes to Sandrico Provo, who based on the location data on Twitter, seems to be in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. He tweeted uh, a couple weeks ago, shout out to Joe Wolf and Joseph Cachado for the best commentary I heard all week when they talked Beal and Lillard. No lie, I listened twice. Winning might not happen for them, but I can't be mad at anyone for taking that much money to play ball. Sandrico, thanks for the shout out. Thanks for reaching out. Hope you've liked this shout out in turn as I replied to you on Twitter. Damon Beal both subscribe to the Ariana Grande School of Thought. Whoever said money can't solve your problems must not have had enough money to solve them. Uh, so, Sandrico, thank you. Uh, we do have, you know, speaking of Beal and Damon, more so Beal. Our next fan shouted on it whenever our next episode comes, whether it's a week from now, two weeks from now, is going to be a dandy because I did get a just chef's kiss of an Instagram DM from a Wizards fan who uh, is a loyal Pound the Rock listener who sent a – it's almost going to be a segment. Forget like a 30-second shout-out because the, the message is just too good. But uh, until then, today's shout-out goes out to Sandrico. We appreciate you listening and spreading the good word of Pound the Rock on Twitter. So, Sandrico, thank you. Thank you to all of our loyal listeners and the usual call out. Hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joseph.cacharo at the score.com. Joe.wolfon at the score.com. And uh, find me on Instagram 
at Joe underscore 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 cash and uh, let us know where you listen from, how long you've been listening, what you like about the show, all that jazz, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode until one of those future episodes that we tell ourselves will be 45 minutes but actually ends up being 75 minutes. For Joe Wolfond, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.